listening to TomCast, Sydney Theatre Company's podcast series in which our Associate Director, Tom Wright, discusses the context and themes of shows in our current season. 2013 season. One of the distinctive things that STC can provide within Sydney's world and within the city of Sydney is that we can produce works of scale. It's one of the things that distinguishes us from the other theatre companies and it's also one of the things that we like to feel that we can do very well. And 2013 is one of those years where you feel that STC is uh, embracing the idea of what scale actually means. Of course, it doesn't always have to mean big shows or expensive shows or shows with large casts. Um, It's more to do with scale of ambition. And in that spirit, we've got a season which consists of some very large-scale works. If you look at what's happening in Sydney Theatre, the the biggest of our spaces over the course of the year, when you move from a show such as The Secret River, which is a large, epic exploration going right back to sort of the nascent years of Australian identity formation, all the way through to, at the end of the year, um, one of the great modernist classics, Waiting for Godot with Hugo Weaving and Richard Roxburgh in it, you realise not just the scale of the individual shows that we offer, but the scale of the range of conversation that takes place over the course of that calendar year. And in between Secret River, along the way, you'll have um, an offering such as One Man, Two Governors, of sort of contemporary British theatre comedy of the of world standard, uh, a work such as The Maids, with two of the finest um, actors in the world being directed in a highly idiomatic and distinctive way, again, work of scale and ambition. Uh, The works that are being done on the big stages are extraordinary in their ambition, at least in our our hopes for them, but it's not just um, on the big stage. Across all our stages, we try to um, create as much scope as we possibly can and as much size. And again, I mean size figuratively, a sense of uh, a company and a group of theatre artists trying to wrestle with big themes. If, if anything, you could suggest that in recent years, the Australian theatre has become preoccupied with the domestic, with um, with families, with individuals, with people's particular inner navel-gazing psychological concerns. One of the things that we're trying to do very hard in 2013 is suggest that there's a bigger, wider universe and a bigger, wider set of ideological and aesthetic problems that confront the world than merely um, uh, what goes on inside a domestic family unit. So there are some useful ways to talk about the course of 2013 for us and some of the ways in which the company talks amongst itself or wants to um, talk to you, the audience, about it. One of the obvious ones, perhaps to start with, is the idea of the absurd. In the 20th century, the idea of the theatre of the absurd was very strongly um, discussed in a way of uh, talking about those years immediately after the Second World War when an entire generation, at least in the Western world, had been through the shattering experience, not just of the war, but after the war, realising what actually went on in the concentration camps, in the prisoner of war camps, what actually happened to a society that was so pleased with itself and had been for so long and had made such extraordinary technological advances and yet somehow along the way seemed to have lost its spiritual core. 
this became really clear when it was patently obvious that you know Nazi officers were quite capable of perpetuating some of the most barbaric acts in the afternoon, having listened to Bach and Schubert in the morning. Uh, so there was a sense that actually the theatre began to respond to this. It began to represent in a kind of almost melancholic sort of wistful way the humour of what it is to be deeply alone and to realise our essentially sort of animal natures. It seems hard and deep, and yet it led to such beautiful work as Waiting for Godot, Beckett's extraordinary sort of um, vision of what it is to have a modern post-faith Garden of Eden or Gethsemane, as it were. There is this sort of barren tree in a landscape that's not really described, and under it stand these sort of two iconic figures. You know, they could be the travellers to Emmaus. You just don't know. It comes. It draws upon a whole range of traditions that come out of the West. But what feels clear, particularly when you look at it in its historical context, is that that denuded, empty landscape and that sort of empty air that Estragon and Vladimir have to breathe is the, is the air that has been, had all of its life sucked out of it by the hideous experiences of the war. Uh, Beckett himself lived through the war and he lived in occupied territory, both occupied territory in a, in a literal sense, in the sense of German-occupied Paris, but metaphorically too, he lived outside of his own native tongue. He lived in a space that had found itself um, built under one ideology and suddenly subjected to another. And it feels to me like this it's taking away all of the trappings of imperialism, militarism, technology, a whole range of things that felt like they were the central concerns of the mid-20th century and going back to essentials, going back to a kind of a deep... Um, wistful, as I said before, a kind of humorous humanism uh, that brings the Waiting for Godot to the fore. It's often mentioned in theatre, sort of making circles, the core truism about Beckett is that he wrote his plays and his texts to be performed by very light performers, by which I mean performers that came out of the English music hall tradition, or perhaps more to our contemporary mindset, sort of the kind of actors that you'd see in a carry-on film, the great Hattie Jacques, Kenneth Williams tradition, these kind of actors who could put on a role in the same way as they'd put on an old coat and take it off again, who who gave a sort of a who gave a line reading who gave character notes as opposed to any deep in um, penetrating psychological truth behind their playing um, and weirdly and sort of almost paradoxically the more lightly some of um, Beckett's texts are played the more beautiful and profound the kind of poetry of the underlying text becomes in that spirit, it felt really um, wonderful to be able to get together Thomas Asher with Hugo Weaving and Richard Roxburgh because both Weaving and Roxburgh um, have one thing in common when they're on stage is that they um, use charm as a scalpel. They're charming men, but their charm is never done for kind of sentimental or vapid purposes. It feels like the charm is the charm of the, um, well, in some cases, the jaded aristocrat who's seen it all, or in some cases, the kind of uh, the, the sort of golden boy who remains perennial optimistic all the way through. I think those qualities that we've seen in recent years from Weaving and Roxburgh on STC stages will be some of the things that they'll bring to those two roles. And for anyone who saw Uncle Vanya, they'll know that um, uh, Thomas Asher's mastery of the um, art form will mean that that production will be a beautiful sort of core text, if you like, for the season as a whole. But there's more to an idea of that sort of the theatre of the absurd, a slightly dated concept, but interesting in itself, than just waiting for God. If you read texts on um, that, that moment in the 20th century, such as Martin Eslin's wonderful book on the theatre of the absurd, two other plays that are just mentioned over and over again are The Maids by Genet, the great sort of French outsider, and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead by Stoppard, the sort of the insider-outsider of England. 
insider because his plays inhabit English in a very much in the English tradition, going right back through Coward and Rattigan, all the way back to Wilde and so on. But an outsider in the sense that Stoppard is a Czech and um, was always self-conscious of the fact that anything he every, every time he used English, he was using it as an outsider and someone who couldn't make cultural assumptions. So for him, language is a game, a tool, um, a, an elaborate Scrabble board, as it were, in much the same way as for Beckett, language is a kind of um, a wistful mask that you can hide behind. And uh, in the case of the maids, well, Genet is a genuine outsider, a man who's lived almost his entire life as a petty criminal, as a sexual outsider, being sort of gay in the days when it was criminal and far less sort of um, politically acceptable, at least, than it might be today. But more importantly, Genet's vision of sexuality, Genet's vision of politics and Genet's vision of what it is to have power was informed in a far darker, harder, mid-20th century way. You can't look at a play like The Maids without thinking about the Algerian conflict and the way in which French society at least had to deal with the way um, post-colonialism came rampaging through their sort of back door. Uh, Genet's play is not in any way directly addressing Algeria, but it's a play of that era, a play about, uh, in many ways, which could come out of a society that was once an empire and is now facing up to the fact that the chickens are coming home to roost, that the dark shadows that imperialism create um, rise up, that the, the, who was once mistress is now a pauper and who was once maid is now mistress herself. Power roles are revealed for what they are, absurd acts, absurd roles, things that are mutually agreed upon by people in a room but can easily be subverted at the touch of a button, so to speak. And this is something that happens in all of these plays that I'm talking about. Maids, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Godot, power, status, language, all of the big themes, and the big ways, the big sticks that in some ways are used to um, beat us up or liberate us in some way are often revealed for, for um, their inner workings. There's a sense that what you're dealing with here are the big machines, the big machines of what we are. It's almost like um, taking the Western world sort of post-war dream and um, putting it up on, on stage. It's a dreamt world, not a political world, not a real world. But there's a broader sense, I suppose you could say, about the absurd too in the course of the 2013 season. If you look at a piece like um, Rose Myers um, and Windmill's wonderful um, piece from coming over from Adelaide, School Dance, which looks at the way in which um, youth... Uh, sort of goes through its rights of sort of sexual and social passage, as it were. <laughs> uh, but it's viewed through a kind of an absurdist prism. And the some of the techniques and tropes and devices that are used by um, Rose Myers in the course of directing a piece like School Dance owe their, their, their antecedents are thoroughly rooted in the, um, the theatre of the absurd and its practitioners. Of course, one of the great, great writers of the theatre of the absurd is Eugene Ionesco, who we're not presenting this year, but... Many people are familiar with the way in which Ionesco and his school of 20th century sort of theatre makers were able to take a theatre which felt like it had be belonged to a received tradition and were able to shake it up. And we're keen to look sort of 60, 70 years later, go back and see what 
directors such as Thomas Usher, such as Simon Phillips, such as Benno Andrews, such as Rose Myers, what they can do with these plays that uh, draw attention to the essential absurdity of existence. I mean, if we do live in a world where we're capable of um, committing um, hideous crimes and vast exploitation on each other, but we're also capable of making each other laugh, you know, what does the individual do and how does the individual uh, respond? Does the individual uh, strive to uh, play out the fantasies of uh, of the predominant paradigm, so to speak, which is in some ways what's going on in The Maids? Or does the individual stand and wait, which is something you find a great deal in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead and in Godot, is that's the idea that these central characters, these central pairings, stand and wait for truth to be visited upon them. Uh, and it's kind of a, an illustration of the difference between what it is to be an active participant in your own fate or fatalistic. There are other ways of thinking about 2013 as well, besides um, thinking about it as the absurd. One of the interesting thematic um, sort of clouds that's floating around the work is the, the, that we're doing is um, the idea of secrets. Uh, the a piece that we're opening the year with, The Secret River, um, Andrew Bovell's adaptation of the Kate Grenville novel, has that word in its title. And in some ways you could almost talk about The Secret River as almost being the sort of the tagline or the thematic sort of ad for our entire season. It's a river of ideas, a stream, a continuing stream of possibilities that we're trying to provoke. But in some way, quite often things are kept hidden. Things are kept secret. In some ways, the secret river that um, is alluded to in that particular play is a river of um, indigenous tradition, which is um, imperceptible to incoming white civilization. It's something that Australian society, society is only beginning to wrestle with now, is that what we once thought we could see um, proved to not be there, but also what we couldn't see was there in great evidence. Um, for instance, when white Australians first arrived here in Australia and looked at the landscape, they saw it as a landscape which was effectively a wilderness where nature had been allowed to run wild or the, the terra nullius, to use a very sort of highly contested phrase. That idea that it was in some way um, Aboriginal society existed within it but had no impact upon it. But what we've learnt in subsequent years, and, and, and this is certainly something that the Secret River touches upon, is that Australia was actually deeply, its natural environment, its landscape and everything, was deeply affected by and uh, bore this witnesses to the presence of um, Indigenous cultures. The problem was that white eyes couldn't see it, not that black um, activity was not evident. And this is in some way what um, the production that Neil Armfield is realising of The Secret River brings out. The way in which uh, secrecy or the idea of what is hidden is sometimes not due to an act of obfuscation, but due to an act of an inability to truly see. It's a a piece which is literally and metaphorically about when cultures come into contact with each other, what the process of translation is. Uh, you, what you're seeing here is the beginnings of both the idea of racial conflict in Australia, but also the beginnings of what it is um, to have a moment of reconciliation. How um, invasive cultures which is, let's face it, the history of humanity, how invasive cultures come to terms with the people that they displace and how the displaced people find ways to remain true and, and have integrity in the face of their displacement. 
So that's a literal secret, as it were. But even the characters within the secret river carry their secrets with them. It's one of, again one of the elements of Australian history that seems so interesting is that humans that came to Australia from other countries quite often, and in many cases, were escaping from something. Sometimes they were being exiled for their crimes, in the case of convicts, but in many other cases they were people fleeing something that they wished to keep hidden. And so there's this idea suggested at the very top of the year in Secret River that Australia, and for that matter, the theatre stage, is a place where individuals can go to reinvent themselves. If you like, in the same way as families hit the Hawkesbury in the very early years of the 19th century, um, so too can an audience enter into a theatre and find new ways to imagine their world, new ways to think about everything. Perhaps the best analogy for this is that wonderful story that for most of um, Western history, anyone anyone educated in the classical tradition used the term a black swan to mean an impossible idea. If something was simply not going to happen and yet imaginable, it was called a black swan. Um, given that, you can imagine what the educated um, men and women from British society, when they first gazed upon genuine, real flesh and feathers, black swans in Australia thought they'd come to a world where the world had had actually been turned upside down. What was previously certain now felt ephemeral and all that was solid melted into air. So secrets is a big theme, not just of the theatre tradition over the years, but it's also a big um, uh, theme in a particularly distinct way for Australian experience. In that spirit, a number of our plays feel like they're plays about secrets. If you look at um, Waiting for Godot, it's a, a piece where the, the, the biggest um, secret of all hangs over it, which is where is this Godot and what is it that we're waiting for? It's a secret that the playwright withholds, not just from his actors, but from the audience as well. The whole experience is one of trying to unpick a secret for which there will probably never be an answer, and that in itself captures an essential human truth. But then on another level, you've got a play such as Veer by John Doyle, where the central character, the eponymous Veer, uh, keeps a secret from those around him. He's a highly respected academic and and man of um, sort of great vision, and yet over the course of the, the two acts of this sort of remarkably sort of bittersweet comedy, Veer has to negotiate his relations with his family and with his colleagues in the light of a particular secret that he carries around with him. And this is another theatrical tradition that idea that the audience and a protagonist can share a core piece of information that no one else on stage knows. And then there are other forms of what it is to hold secrecy or to in some way exist in a cloud of unknowing. Uh, The Maids is a piece about what it is to put on and off social roles, both metaphorically and, you know, actually to put on and off costume, to put on and off the role of mistress, to put on and off... um, power to put on and off the capacity to deliver pain to other people. It's a form of um, acknowledging that actually a great deal of what's essentially true about human beings is just social activity, is just the way we behave. And the secret, in a way, that um, Genet starts to ask is, well, where is the real Claire? Where is the real Solange? in this um, play? Are they just the lines they say, the games they play? Are these games they play to amuse each other their core identity? Or is there a secret real psychological truth underneath it all? Maybe it's not. Maybe it's like an episode of Pass the Parcel where you just keep tearing off the newspaper and then underneath is nothing but air. We are the newspaper that wraps us. There's no core kernel. There's no core truth. It's a kind of despairing view, but it's a view of the idea that we love to believe there's a ghost in the machine. 
so to speak, that there is some a soul deep in the heart of the human rib cage, and then there's a fear that maybe there isn't, and maybe the core human secret is that there's nothing at all. And we're better than the theatre, which reveals um, the fallacy in some way, or the, the the gamesmanship of what it is of of playing out your identity to reveal these kind of things. So you've got. That, but you've also got Romeo and Juliet, where of course the which the the you know great Shakespearean classic um, trades upon and turns upon the idea of who keeps a secret from whom, who has knowledge. But it also deals with the idea that young people, young people in the sort of the height of sort of erotic power, um, have their own capacity to realise their desires kept hidden from them. One in some ways the tragedy of Romeo and Juliet, at least from a sort of a postmodern perspective, is their inability to um, inhabit. Their own sexual narrative. It feels like, particularly in the case of Juliet, that everybody else owns their um, their bodies, their social identity, their names, and you know it's a big, famous passage about that. Except themselves. And so when Juliet's asking, you know, what's in a name? You know, if you were called something else, you would smell as sweet, so to speak. She's actually drawing attention to the way in which language sits in an arbitrary space. Um, it's not language isn't in direct relationship to reality. It's not something where a word has a direct relationship to its object. It's actually a beautiful world of subjectivity, and never more true is that than in the world of young love. And you've got Rosencrantz and Guildenstern as well, or for that matter, Joanna Murray Smith's Fury, two other plays which also deal in secrets. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern um, in some ways uh, is a attempt to turn Hamlet inside out and all of the things that take place off stage in Hamlet we see on stage and there in far in the distance through a back wall you might just see um, Hamlet delivering sort of the to be or not to be speech at Elsinore but what we're looking at on the front is two marginal characters who have information that is to say what they've been entrusted to do to Hamlet and um, don't know quite how to act and are caught are trapped by the, their own secrecy. It's a remarkable set of players. In fact, I think I've mentioned eight already. And all eight over the course of the year bring into sort of in some way onto the stage the idea of what it is to be in disguise, the idea of what it is to withhold information and the idea that perhaps that information that might liberate you or um, in some way inspire you is not there at all. It's an idea of elusiveness. There are other themes as well that can be spoken about for 2013 or another way of thinking about it or reasons why you can, when you see these plays over the course of the year, start to feel like they're talking to each other and all of them are talking to you. Uh, for instance, women is a really useful way of thinking about it. Women in the world. This is, you know, let's face it, 50% of the population, all theatre should be about this, but there are plays which do it very, very interestingly. We'd like to feel we've got a couple of them this year. If you look at a play like The Maids, patently it's about female identity but it's also it's a gendered thing as you know it's a it's it's Genet's vision of what it is to be gendered as woman and how you act out womanhood what what of your womanhood is learnt behavior and what of your womanhood is essential is a core question that comes out of the maids but if you look at a, a piece like um dance better at parties with Gideon Obajanek's piece that he's doing is little two-hander the way in which the the protagonist um invests in the female um, sort of characters in his life, um, you realise that he too is trapped in some way by the way in which sort of womanhood is a socially constructed idea. He finds it very hard to, through 
language or through the usual social routes actually relate to his the women in his life and it is only through dance it's only through the liberation of the body through learning how to dance ballroom dancing that in some way he finds a way to actually genuinely relate to um, if you well at the risk of interpreting it to strip away the sort of the all the patriarchal trimmings of his sort of upbringing and find a way to become an essential human being again or if you look at a piece like uh, Machinal, a wonderful 1920s expressionist play by the great American journalist Sophie Treadwell, this is a wonderful play, a great piece of sort of American expressionism, which is not a form we see a great deal in Australia. And it's based upon the wonderful uh, sort of and creepy macabre story of Ruth Schneider, who was a famous murderer. Um, executed in the United States, who um, was in in those very early days was one of the first cases where um, Western society began to actually ask, well, to what extent does an abused wife have entitlement under the law? Machinal deals with a young girl who's extremely naive, the play paints her as extremely naive, who finds herself trapped in an abusive and loveless marriage, has an affair and is caught up and implicated in the the murder of her husband. The play deals with it in an expressionist fashion, but what you realise and when you look at this play, which is getting close to 90 years old um, soon, you realise that what we're dealing with here is the first generation of playwrights, women playwrights, beginning to really wrestle with what it is to be liberated. Not just um, the suffragette movement of getting the vote, not just the idea of what it is to be um, to, to gain sort of sexual and social um, independence, but to actually realise that there's a great deal of potency and power in your own narrative, not a narrative determined by anyone else. Um, and Treadwell well does this in a very interesting way. She makes her core character, this woman, she makes her like a cipher. And that it's the women around her and the men around her that we view her through and we begin to see the way in which um, it well, Treadwell's almost suggesting something very different to Beckett, not acting doing nothing, standing and waiting, is not acting at all to her. What she's suggesting is that actually if you stand and wait, something will happen to you. So it's a play that comes out of a strong activist tradition, but it's a, str- a very humanist play too, in the sense that it, it views the the human subject, the woman in question here, as both victim but also um, protagonist in her own uh, narrative. Very interesting play to be directed by our 2012 Richard Warrett fellow, Imara Savage, with Harriet Dyer in the lead. Uh, one that we sort of feel comes out of the Wharf 2 tradition, And this takes me to a a key sort of uh, observation along the way about the way in which you might want to think about STC in 2013. There are works that I've mentioned before, such as One Man, Two Governors or Secret River, which are uh, big scale works in Sydney theatre. But there are also um, works of ambition taking place in Wharf 2. They're um, smaller, their budgets are much smaller, their casts are much smaller, but they all relate together in some ways in an elaborate pattern. And so Machinal is a smaller um, a smaller Wharf 2 show, but in some ways it's in conversation with shows such as uh, Dance Better at Parties or Fury or The Maids, purely because it actually suggests the idea that what it is to be a woman and the way in which we construct women is a problem. And that's one of the things that theatre does beautifully and does in some ways the best, is it takes things that we think are simple and renders them complicated in a way that makes us think afresh. You can't mention women in the season without talking about Mrs Warren's profession, which is an extraordinary piece of uh, George Bernard Shaw playwriting coming out of the late 19th century, 
um, a piece of proto-feminism and a piece of family identity. The way in which um, Helen Thompson and Lizzie Shabester will unfold these two roles in some ways becomes sort of the key play to discussing the relation of um, the way in which women in the world is a theme over the course of 2013. Because Mrs Warren, the character of Mrs Warren, is a woman who has made her way in the world financially, sexually, socially. She is her own woman. Um, and she's bought for her daughter a great deal of privilege and possibility. But um, as is so often the case, and it's a great trope going all the way through literature, and let's face it, it's great expectations in a way, the daughter doesn't understand the price that has been genuinely paid, the real story behind what has bought her those opportunities. In some ways, what's wonderful about it is 140 years on, it feels like sort of second-generation feminism and third-generation feminism in discussion is encapsulated all that time ago by the character of Mrs Warren and her daughter Vivi discussing what it is to be emancipated. Because at heart, that's what's going on in that play, what it is to be in control of your own destiny and what are the compromises you have to make along the way. And uh, it's also a, a beautiful play in terms of um, being prepared, at least in the, the world of George Bernard Shaw, to be able to name names, to be actually, for Mrs Warren to actually be able to name the business of um, running prostitution as a legitimate business would have been so shocking in the world of the 1880s London stage. And interestingly, and one thing we can test now, is just to see how much potency the daughter's moral outrage at her mother still retains um, its force. That, that's not to suggest that this play is only about um, a mother and a daughter, but at its heart that's what's going on. A beautiful play about um, the Western world asking what it is to be a woman inside a world, what it is to be a woman existing inside patriarchy. Beautiful theme and a number of plays. We could talk about others. School dance actually offers up a, a different form of that. It's a very male, young male perspective, but the way in which their vision of woman, sort of it's part puberty blues and it's sort of it's part um, erotic fantasy and it's part sort of deep psychological trauma in a very humorous ways, in humorous way. Or Little Mercy, which plays with again with the way in which um, uh, womanhood is seen as something that's acted out as opposed to essentially within. These are all deeply problematic, troubling sort of social constructs. And over the course of seven or eight plays, very different visions of female experience are, are offered to the audience. But we don't have to just sort of limit it to women either. You could Another way of thinking about 2013 is to think about it in terms of social anxiety. The idea that actually we are all, all of us in some way, deeply anxious about ourselves as players, as actors on the social stage. And that's a really common theme, particularly through modern and postmodern drama. But in this year, in this year it's got a, a quite interesting strand running through it. Dance Better at Parties deals with you know, a protagonist whose marriage is, um, feels like it's coming to an end. And he uh, has to, in some way, negotiate his way back into the world. And as I said before, he does that through dance. Dance as a means or as a physicalised acting out, almost a ritualised social passage out of his own particular set of social anxieties, his own sense of entrapment. Uh, or in the case of uh, Little Mercy, you've got a, a kind of a very camp and a very playful enactment of uh, the, an anxiety about what it is to be a child. In some ways, the 2012 uh, show, uh, The Splinter, talked, very, took the idea of childhood and parenthood very seriously. Little Mercy almost has a, it's time to talk about Kevin, we need to talk about Kevin's sort of um, vision of the world. What, it is, what is it if, if your child is actually a monster? What is it to actually um, 
uh, inhabit a world where you know uh, that your your child is sort of a, a, a disgraceful creature. A very funny play, but one that actually um, brings into uh, plays upon in a great sort of um, 1930s and 40s Hollywood fashion plays upon social anxiety, social roles, what it is to play out inappropriate and appropriate behaviour. Mrs. Warren's Profession, I've mentioned already, a great play about um, the anxiety of what it is to be appropriate, but particularly if you're a young woman in search of a husband. It feels like all of that kind of deep neurosis that seems present in the novels of Jane Austen or in the characters in Middlemarch of George Eliot or something like that, that great English tradition about how in those few limited years when women are in control of their own lives, how do they retain that control and the kind of high levels of anxiety um, that are associated with that are all played out beautifully in Mrs Warren. You've got the adolescent anxiety of uh, of the young men and young women in school dance. You've got uh, a deep anxiety about how... Um, societies that have strong religious faith and societies that are, see themselves as secular or families that see themselves as secular, families that see themselves as Christian, how they deal with each other is dealt with um, uh, extensively in Via, where two families come next to each other and realise that although they speak the same language and inhabit a similar Australia, fundamentally their value system from the material to the eschatological, all of them are um, very different. And so there's a sense that actually what you get in one of the, the sources of the dramatic tension in Veer is that um, these two visions of the world lead to a, a played out in forms of sort of social faux pas, mistakes, insults, things taken the wrong way. Um, it provides comedy on one moment, on another level it provides a great deal of poignancy. But there's others too. I mean, Storm Boy, which we're presenting with um, Bark and Gecko from Western Australia, is a, again a great piece about what it is for a child, you know, in uh, straightened and sort of difficult circumstances, for a child to come to uh, into adulthood, uh, the anxiety of what it is to grow up. Uh, so, and, and Machinal, I've also mentioned before, Machinal, the Sophie Treadwell play, again, a deep play about actually what it is to know your place in the world and how to be firstly um, socially acceptable, but secondly, true to yourself is a very strong thematic there in that sort of tragedy of that, of that play. So I've spoken there a little bit about some ideas that are ways of thinking your way through what the season might offer. The secrets theme, the absurd theme, they sort of interrelate. Women in the world or social anxiety, they sort of interrelate. It's not to say that when we try to program these seasons, we seek to sort of create a holistic, carefully put together set of um, texts that um, reflect the artistic director's beliefs. It's not so much that. It's that sometimes when you put A and B together, C becomes apparent. And one of the beautiful things about theatre is the way in which every single audience member is having a similar and yet um, peculiarly distinctively idiosyncratic experience. Um, and similarly... Uh, there's a sense that sometimes the conversations that take place between work are designed and sometimes the conversations that take place between, between various works in the season feel almost inadvertent. And that's what we try to aim at. What we try to offer to people who come to Sydney Theatre Company over the course of a calendar year is we'd like to feel that every single night that they come or every individual show, that if you enter in the right spirit, you'll take away something from it. But if you come more than once and if you come over the course of the year, whether it's six shows or seven or eight or nine, that 
there's there's more to it than the sum of its parts, is that it's more to it than just six shows. You get six shows, but you also get the space between those six shows. And you can say, yes, you know, what was interesting about The Maids and about sort of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern is that they shared this, this and this in common, but in this, this and this respect, their vision of humanity is completely different. Because those conversations, those compare and contrast, those, that sense that actually the works are, um, are talking amongst themselves means that you get an overall experience, and that is theatre. One show is just a show, but going to theatre over the course of the year is engaging with the city and with the community and with, with, with culture, to be honest, in the small c sense of the word. So uh, and it's for that reason that we try to talk about our STC season as a a package as a whole as something that could be taken apart and viewed in isolation but also something that um, has a sort of a nice cloud of knowing um, happening within it so we hope that in that spirit people will find it a nice rich road to walk down